Now, dear ones, today we are in Matthew 9, 9 through 13. And in today's text, we're going to learn the shocking truth that Jesus calls sinners, not the righteous. And my title of this message is really an attempt to explain the irony of Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, like so many people today in our culture, thought that they were righteous, but their own arrogance really showed that they were deceived. Now, ironically, today we're going to find out it's those who know that they are sinners and recognize their need to be spared from God's wrath who end up finding the atonement that comes for Christ. And so today we're going to be challenged with the question, will I acknowledge myself the need for atonement, the need for a Savior? Brothers and sisters, that's the challenge that we're going to see here today. We're going to learn again that those who are justified are those who acknowledge their need, while those who don't, they go astray, they go to perdition. Now today we're going to begin... In Matthew 9, verse 9, before we continue on, we're going to see here the calling of Matthew. Now, this is going to set the stage for Matthew throwing a dinner in which you're going to see Jesus dine with sinners and be accused and criticized by Pharisees. So it begins with the calling of Matthew. Notice what the text says. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now, I'm going to pull up my pointer here. The first thing I want you to see here is that we're talking about the calling of Matthew. Matthew, of course, is one of the 12 apostles that was called by Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew also, according to Luke 5.27, had another name that was a Hebrew name, Levi. Now, Matthew means gift of God. And as I'm going to show you in just a moment, not all Israelites thought that this Matthew was a gift from God, and I'll explain why. But I want you to see that Jesus comes across Matthew in this tax collector's booth. And more than likely, that booth would have been along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps here, it would have been on the outskirts of Capernaum. And the reason it would be along the seashore is Herod uh, uh, Antipas, I was going to say Agrippa, but it was actually Herod Antipas, he would often place his tax collectors along the Sea of Galilee so that they could tax the various ships that would otherwise be outside their control. So Matthew would have been one of those tax collectors in the booth. And so that's where Jesus comes across him. And notice here we have a very short dialogue. Jesus commands Matthew to follow him. Now, this command here is an imperative of akalutha'o. It is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a hint. It's not a request. It is the second person of the Trinity commanding Matthew to follow him, and he does. Notice it says very succinctly, it says, and he got up and he followed him. Now, what I want you to see in the calling of Matthew is that, number one, it was a personal calling, and number two, related to that, it was objective. It wasn't Matthew having some inner unction thinking that I'm really sick of this tax collector business. I think I'll become an apostle. No, it was Jesus Christ intervening in his life personally and objectively calling him. Later in our application, I'll explain how many modern-day apostles, they claim to have a calling from God, but they can't claim a personal and objective calling by the Lord Jesus Christ. Their calling is impersonal and it's subjective. 
The other thing I want to point out here is notice Matthew did not find Jesus and initiate this calling. Jesus initiated the calling with Matthew. And I know here we're talking about the calling of an apostle, but I would say the same thing applies even in salvation. Even in salvation, it's the Lord who calls effectually. It's not us who go seeking after him. Now, with that, let's continue on here in verses 10 through 11, where we see Matthew doesn't begin his apostolic ministry here by quietly sulking and desperate resignation as to what is going to happen to him as an apostle, but instead he throws a great banquet. He throws a celebration dinner for Jesus, and so that's where we pick it up here. Matthew 9, 10 through 11, it says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, the first thing I want you to note is Jesus here is reclining at this table. So it's a dinner, and he is in the house. This begs the question, whose house was he in? Well, as I mentioned, it was in Matthew's house. And we know that from other passages in the other synoptic gospels, like Luke 5.29. In fact, if you're a note-taker, just jot that down, because there it says this. It says, and Levi, remember that's the other name for Matthew, gave a big reception for Jesus in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, you might ask yourself, why doesn't Matthew just say that it was his house? Well, oftentimes the biblical writers show a lot of humility when they write. Or they don't boast in what they've done. And so the other biblical writers take it upon themselves to boast that indeed Matthew was the one who celebrated Jesus with this great dinner. Now, notice here, who is Jesus dining with? Well, he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. Now, let me explain why Matthew, the gift of God, who was a tax collector, probably wasn't all that loved by many of the Israelites. The Israelites looked at tax collectors as those who were really throwing Israel under the bus and were really traitors to the nation. Why? Because Roman rule had pushed the Israelites under their thumb, and the tax collectors were seen as those who had conspired with the Romans against Israel. And so in some sense, if we want to get our mindset around how the average Israelite thought about the tax collector, think about how many Americans think now about those in the deep state. For example, the Department of Justice, and I use that term loosely, or the ATF, the FBI, that sort of thing. That's how the Israelites would have viewed Matthew, much in the same way. Now, notice the other group that was dining with Jesus were sinners. And I know you're probably thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, Eric, isn't, aren't the tax collectors sinners? Isn't everyone there sinners besides Jesus? That's true. And that's an astute theological point that you're making. Good job. We'll come back to that, but set that aside, that biblical truth for a moment, and I want you to think through the perspective of the Pharisees. To them, they had two groups of sinners. The first group of sinners in their minds were what were called the Amharats. In Hebrew, it's the people of the land. People of the land. And so this would be Israelites who lived in the land of Israel, yet they would not partake in the regulations and the scruples of the Pharisees. And so certainly, Jesus and his own disciples would be in that camp. They lived in the land, and yet they didn't partake in the Pharisaic regulations. And so we know 
because that's the case. That is not the group of sinners that Matthew intends. The second group of sinners that the Pharisees would look down upon are those who in their minds had committed some grievous sin. Perhaps it was some sort of felony or oftentimes it was prostitution. And we know from other accounts in the Gospels, there indeed were prostitutes who would come for forgiveness of sins to this very type of dinner. Now, this explains then that the Pharisees regard other people as sinners and not themselves. And so as you look in red, notice here the very spiritual blindness that the Pharisees have. They ask the question, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? And right away, we should see the irony there that they don't regard themselves as sinners. But first of all, I want you to note that they don't go to Jesus even directly. They ask the disciples why it is that Jesus dines with tax collectors and with sinners. And so the Pharisees, they had scruples to the point where they didn't believe it would be right for them to challenge another teacher who taught publicly to challenge them in public. But notice, talking behind his back with the disciples and not going to him directly, gossiping and slandering, well, that's no problem. And that gives you a little bit of an inkling with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees that was really no, fair, no righteousness at all. Now, notice here their question also reveals a bitter irony. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? The reason why Jesus has to dine with sinners is because if he didn't dine with sinners, he'd be dining alone. That's the issue. And we all see that, but the Pharisees don't. That's what we have to have in our minds. Second, this shows us the Pharisees are self-deceived. The self-deception of the Pharisees means that they don't see their need for atonement, their need for a savior. Now, one thing I want to point out here is the fact that Jesus is dining with sinners and with Pharisees should bring to our minds the article that Bob Dway had written called Dining with the King. I hope everyone has read that here. It's volume 126, Dining with the King. And here's what I wanted you to think about. All the way through the Old Testament, there are dinners in which unexpected people are saved and unexpected people are judged. All the way through the Old Testament, there's a dinner, someone is saved, and someone is lost. That culminates in some sense here and then later in the future eschatological banquet. We're going to be looking that at that in our application. The point being, dear ones, is this divide over these dinners is really a divide over grace versus works. I want you to think about that for just a moment. You have sinners here. Some of them will be saved. Why? Because they know they're sinners and they know they can only be saved by grace. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they believe in their scruples and their rituals. They stand by their works. And so you have a dinner in which there's a radical divide between grace versus works. And so it begs the question of us, am I personally the Pharisee who thinks I stand by my mere scruples or good works? Or will I be like the sinners who acknowledge my need for atonement and for a savior? I think that's the question the text is begging of all of us. 
Now, as we continue on here in verses 12 through 13, we see that Jesus' reply is very cutting, and it really is designed to move the Pharisees to consider their own self-assurance. Notice it continues. It says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, dear ones, first of all, I want you to notice that Jesus' response is with a proverb. Notice this is a proverb of unknown origin where it says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. We don't know where that comes from, but it is true. Obviously, the healthy don't need the physician. It is only the sick. But again, I think there's biting irony in that the Pharisees really are sick. They just don't know it. And I'll show you evidence that indeed Jesus knows that they're not righteous. He knows their illness. He knows they're sinners. I'll show you proof of that. But no, notice here in verse 13, Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. Now stop there. When Jesus says that to the Pharisees, he is not saying, go and learn something of the Bible that you never knew. In other words, he's not saying that there's a text out there that they've never read. No, the Pharisees probably had Hosea 6 down by heart. What Jesus is demanding of them is to learn its correct application, an application to their lives. Now, notice here, Hosea 6, 6, it's actually a quotation from the Septuagint. For those of you that may be new to theology, that's a quotation from the Greek translation rather than the Hebrew. And I'll explain why it may be somewhat significant. I think it's really synonymous. The big issue is the term compassion. In the Greek, it's elios, which can be rendered mercy. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew would have been chesed. Chesed is a reference to grace and mercy, but it also can be used in wider ranges like loyalty. Now, let me explain how I think the text originally was applied to Israel in Hosea's day and explain why Jesus wants the Pharisees to apply it to themselves. You'll see the connection. First of all, in Israel, in Hosea chapter 6, the Israelites were engaged in idolatry, living like the pagans, worshiping even at times the pagan gods with a small g. And yet all of a sudden on Sabbath, they get religion and they put, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, they put the goat in the offering plate. So they had their rituals, but their heart was far from God. Well, what's very interesting is God said, I desire literally chaset. The root of chaset is a grace and a mercy, but it's hard to conceptualize always. There's always a, a nuance of a covenant loyalty. The idea of a genuine faith could be a rendering of it as well. One that stems from the heart in which you love God and you love neighbor. And so that's the kind of loyalty that God wanted from Israel, but all they had was the ritual sacrifice. Much like Isaiah 1. Remember in Isaiah 1, the people of Israel are sacrificing, but they want nothing to do with God. So in a sense, if I could summarize Isaiah 1, the Lord says, take your rituals, take your bulls and your goats and stick them in your ear. I don't want your sacrifice anymore if that's the way you're going to live. So in a real way, in Hosea 6, 6, what God is saying is I want a heart that loves me with all your being, loves neighbor as yourself and not mere ritual. I want saving faith, not works. I want genuine faith, not mere sacrifice. 
That's exactly what Jesus is calling the Pharisees to. Oh, they had their rituals. They would tithe at the right times. They would give alms. They would wash ceremonially their hands before dinner. Oh, they would do it all. They had all the rituals, but they didn't have a love for God and a love for neighbor that led them to be merciful to those that they regarded as sinners. And for that, Jesus is rebuking them as those who really don't have genuine faith. Now, notice the irony continues where Jesus says in red, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Dear ones, Jesus does not have righteous people to call. The rebuke is ironic in that the Pharisees believe in their own righteousness or their own scruples, their own regulations, their own religion prevented them from seeing the need for atonement, the need for a savior. Now, I want you to see that when Jesus says this in red, when he says, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners, Jesus is not being deceived by the Pharisees that in some sense maybe we think, well, Jesus may think that they're righteous. No, Jesus knows the Pharisees are not righteous. And we know that because of what he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.20, this is what Jesus says to all of his followers. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes, and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Dear ones, the Pharisees were not righteous and Jesus knew it. So this text makes us want to go back to the basics. And we're going to talk about this later in our application. Romans 3.23 is absolutely correct when it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every Pope, every priest, every pastor, every elder, whoever the religious figure is, all have sinned and rebelled against God. And so at the end of the day, all are sinners. And so at the dinner, if you think about it, there's really just two groups of sinners. There's two groups at sinners of sinners that are dining with Jesus at this banquet. This first group of sinners know that they're sinners. They know they need atonement. They know they, know they need a savior. The second group of sinners don't know that they're sinners. They stand self-deceived. They don't need atonement in their minds. They don't think they need a savior. And so in a real sense, I want you to think about the problem with Pharisees and those who trust in their good works, they are self-deceived. And self-deceived, I think, functions much like a vaccination. Let me give you a vaccination analogy. And I know that may be a little bit of a sore subject in light of the vaccine debacles that we've all gone through in this COVID era, but nonetheless, I'll try it. Everyone knows the goal of a vaccine is to vaccinate someone so that they get a little bit of the virus or something like it so that they don't get the real thing. That's the goal. So if you got a polio vaccine back in the 1950s, it prevented you from getting the real thing. What false religion does, and every form of false religion, whether it's New Age spirituality, atheism, unbelief, relying upon your own good works, Mormonism, we could go on and on. All of it is part of self-deception. If that is your vaccination, it will prevent you from getting the real righteousness that comes from Jesus alone. The Pharisees were vaccinated 
with their own self-righteousness, their own deception, and it kept them from getting the real thing through faith alone in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, today, this is a text that should challenge us to ask ourselves, do I have Jesus Christ and his atonement, or am I merely vaccinated, which prevents me from getting the real thing? I think this text begs us to ask that. Okay, now, with that, let's come to some application points. I have three of them that I think logically flow from the text. And you might ask, why do Bob and I do this? What we do is with applications is we break them out logically to connect to the meaning of the text. So if I come up with some application that doesn't logically flow from the text, you can challenge me on that, or Bob. That's why we do it, so that you can, as the priesthood of every believer, judge them for yourself. Number one, we should understand the personal and objective nature of the apostle's calling. Not everyone who thinks that they are an apostle that has some inner unction obviously is an apostle. No, there's a distinction between the personal and objective versus the impersonal and the subjective. Number two, we should understand the ironic reversal of salvation and judgment that occurs at dinners throughout the Bible. That's what I'm going to show you through the Old Testament. Through a dinner, you'll see someone is unexpectedly saved and someone unexpectedly judged. And it culminates eventually at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Number three, we must recognize our personal need to be washed clean from our sins by Christ. That's the major point. We don't want to be like the Pharisees vaccinated from getting the real righteousness from Christ. Now, let's begin with number one. I think many people today believe that modern-day apostles in their personal callings are in fact valid. That's a big epidemic, I think, in our Christian culture in America. What I want to show you is that the calling of the apostles, the original 12 plus Paul, was not some inner unction or desire that they had, but it was a personal calling, an objective calling by Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's what we saw today in Matthew 9.9 where Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew followed him. Now, we see this earlier also in Matthew, not just with Matthew, but with the other apostles as well. Notice here the calling of James and John. Notice Matthew 4.21. It says, going on from there, he, and the he there, of course, is Jesus. He saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Well, who called them? Well, Jesus did. And again, it was personal and it was objective. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, God in the flesh, verbally calling the apostles to follow him. So notice here the calling of the two Zebedee brothers, James and John, was not them sitting around with their dad Zebedee at a, a dinner and the boys complaining, you know, I don't think there's any future in this fishing business. We're thinking about going into becoming apostles. We have that burning desire to do that. No, it wasn't initiated by them at all. It was a personal and objective calling by Jesus. All right, now, you might ask yourself, well, what about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, of course, was not around during the earthly ministry of Jesus during the time of the other 12. But notice the claim that Paul makes, and he makes it in most of his epistles. He will point out that he's called as an apostle. Romans 1.1, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What we have to affirm is that the calling of the Apostle Paul is also personal 
and objective. How? Well, think about Paul, who at the time was Saul, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, is personally confronted by the resurrected, the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And what's more, this resurrected Christ also personally instructed the Apostle Paul in the doctrines of the faith for three years in Arabia, so says the book of Galatians. So yes, absolutely the calling of the Apostle Paul. Yes, it was later, but it was also personal and it was objective. Where can that be seen today of anyone who claims to be a modern-day apostle? It's not valid. The original apostles were called personally and objectively. They were eyewitness of the, eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They did miraculous deeds like Christ, and they were personally instructed by Christ. No person claiming to be a modern-day apostle meets that criteria today. Now, let me apply one more thing in this. I think it's important. Many years ago, I left the airline industry to pursue theology. I had a degree, and I decided to get another degree. And so I decided to get into theology because I was a flight instructor. I enjoyed teaching. I thought, well, what better way to make money than to teach something you really love, which is the Scriptures? But oftentimes, people would come to me, and they'd say, Eric, when were you called? And I kind of politely would always say, well, you know, I kind of, it was back in such and such a date. But in the back of my mind, I knew that I didn't have a personal and an objective calling like the apostles. Mine was impersonal and it was subjective. I had a desire. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because it applies to every Christian. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, every single Christian has is be, is been given a gift by the Spirit for the edification of the body and the glorification of God's name. Every one of you are gifted, and we see as elders the gifts that you all use. And if you didn't, I wouldn't be standing up here and speaking. It wouldn't happen. So you all use your gifts, and you might ask, well, wait a minute, do I have to wait for a personal and objective calling? No, you won't get that. The way you find out what you're to do in ministry, what your gifting is, is when you have a godly desire to serve your brothers, to edify your brothers and sisters, and to glorify God, and you follow up that desire by acting on it in the service of the saints at the church, your brothers and sisters will affirm whether it's a valid gift or not. If I got up here and started to lead worship, you would know very quickly, this is not a gifting of yours, Eric. We cherish every day that Steve Ziff is with us leading worship you would cherish the day that I stopped leading worship if I were doing it. It's not a gifting from God. That's the idea. So again, what we have to do is be careful when we're talking about pastors, we're talking about those who are not apostles, that we had an objective and personal calling by Christ. No, I had a desire, and it ended up being a gifting that other saints recognized. And the same applies to all of you in whatever it is. Brothers and sisters, what I'm desirous of doing is maintaining the uniqueness of the apostles because they were the men who gave us the very words of God. The New Testament, the very words of Christ, we know that they are in fact from God because they were delivered to us under apostolic authority. And it is that authority that we should be zealous to preserve as being unique. Okay, now with that, let's turn to the second concept today. And it's a concept that I think will help illuminate the significance of Jesus here dining with sinners and with Pharisees. It's one in which 
The Old Testament portrays what's called a mishtah, a dinner or a banquet. And all the way through the Old Testament, what happens at these mishtahs, these banquets, is that someone is unexpectedly saved and another is unexpectedly judged. Bob DeWay wrote about this in his fine article. It's my favorite, by the way. If you can say you have a favorite, it's CIC Article 126, Dining with the King. So, was that correct? Uh, oh, okay. Oh, good. You still have copies. I heard Christy say something. We have copies of that maybe back on the back table, so you haven't read that. Well, let me put up the data points from it. Let's begin with Genesis chapter 19. And there was a mishta, a dinner held with Lot, remember, and the angels. And right after this dinner is held, Lot ends up being saved, but Sodom ends up being judged. There's a judgment and a salvation. Next dinner comes up just two chapters later. There's another mishta and a dinner. And this time, Abraham's son of promise, Isaac, he ends up staying, but Ishmael is sent away. There's one son of promise, the son of Isaac, from whom the messianic promises come. He remains. Ishmael is sent away. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 40. Remember, Joseph had the dream. And in his dream, the cupbearer would be elevated, but the baker would be hung. Right after a dinner, sure enough, that's exactly what happens. After a, bit, a mishta, the cupbearer was elevated, the baker was hung. Fast forward to 1 Samuel 25. Remember, Nabal the fool mistreated David and his men. David is really the anointed one of Yahweh. So when Nabal the fool mistreated David's men, it was as if he was mistreating David himself. But recall that Abigail intercede not only to protect Nabal from being killed by David, but to protect David from becoming a murderer. Well, after a mishta, a dinner, Nabal ends up being killed by the Lord. David's hands were clean. And Abigail was elevated, in a sense, married to David. Now, fast forward to one of the most important dinners that ever occurred in history because the whole race of the Israelites was in jeopardy at the hands of a wicked man named Haman. Remember in Esther chapter 7, you have Esther, the queen, who intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. And after a mishta, a banquet, Mordecai the Jew that Haman wanted to hang, he ends up being elevated and Haman is hung on the very gallows that he prepared. You have salvation and you have judgment. Well, then you fast forward to the New Testament and all of a sudden Jesus is at a dinner. And the two groups is you've got the sinners and you've got the Pharisees. The sinners, those that are saved there, know they need a Savior they know that the only way they can stand before a holy and righteous God is by grace alone. The Pharisees, on the other hand, in their own scruples, their own vaccinated state, don't see a need for the real righteousness that comes through faith alone and Christ alone. And the point being is the Pharisees, if they remain there, they're going to be hardened, heading for hell, but the sinners are saved. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is very clear throughout the scriptures and the New Testament, the Gospels, that indeed the works of the Pharisees will not save you. In fact, notice what Jesus says here in Matthew 21, 31. Jesus says, Truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you. He says that to the Pharisees. Now, all of this is foreshadowing a future banquet, a future dinner 
that's still in our future. You find this in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, it records the final battle that surrounds Jerusalem at the end of Daniel's 70th week. So this is the end of the seven years of tribulation where all the nations try to wipe out Jerusalem. But the Messiah intervenes. He descends and he places his foot on the Mount of Olives, as it says in Zechariah 14.4. And he's going to destroy, as it says in Revelation 19, all of the enemies that surround Jerusalem. But listen to what it says in Revelation 19.17. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God. Verse 18. This is Revelation 19.18. So that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and those who sat on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. There's going to be a dinner. But this dinner is the angel accumulating all of these birds of the air to get ready to feast upon the enemies of God who rebelled against Messiah. Meanwhile, you and I who belong to Jesus, we're going to have dinner with the king. The unbelievers are going to be dinner. You and I go to dinner. That's a big contrast. Every time you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, we are not only remembering what Christ has done, but you and I are foreshadowing the great messianic banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which you and I go dine with the king while the enemies that surround Jerusalem end up being dinner themselves. Brothers and sisters, this really poses the question, or it should to every human, are you dinner or are you going to dinner? Are you a Pharisee or are you a sinner? Are you saved by works or are you saved by grace? If you're saved by works, you're on this side of the equation. You're heading for judgment. If you're saved by grace, you're heading for salvation. That's the truth that we see all the way through scriptures, and it all happens at the dinner. Now, let's go to our final point. And the final point today is of primary importance, and that is to learn to see our own need for atonement, our own need for a Savior. The Pharisees didn't see that they were sinners. They didn't see the need. They were vaccinated. Now, I want you to see that this is all over the Scriptures. Jesus points this out all the time to the Pharisees to try to get them out of their vaccinated state. For example, here in Luke 18, notice the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. It says, The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Let's stop there. That's not a good prayer. <laughs> I'm not the best exegete in the world, but I know that that's not a good prayer. Verse 12, notice he says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, verse 13, notice the contrast. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Notice the phrase, merciful, literally is propitious literally has to do with atonement. Be atoning to me. I'll talk about the significance of that in a couple of slides. Be atoning to me, not just a sinner, the sinner. In Matthew chapter 9 today, we saw two groups, the Pharisees who said, I'm glad I'm not like other people, 
And we saw the sinners who said, Lord, have mercy on me. The sinner saw their need. The Pharisee didn't. And so the question again is, what about us? Will we recognize our own need for atonement for a Savior? Think about the apostle Peter's pride. Got in the way of him receiving the washing that came from Jesus. Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet to make a grander point that Jesus would one day wash him of his sins by his soon substitutionary atonement. But notice how this went down. Peter, in John thirteen eight said to him, Never shall you wash my feet, Jesus. Excuse me, feet. Stop. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, it's interesting. Peter's pride here may initially seem to be a pious one in which Peter does not want to break protocol. He, being the disciple, being washed by the master. And a lot of us think, well, yeah, isn't it to be the way it, the way it should be is that the master is washed by the disciple. But the point that Jesus is driving at in the washing here, which is highly symbolic, is that if he doesn't wash Peter from his sins, Peter has nothing to do with him. And that's the problem with the Pharisees. The Pharisees and those who are vaccinated by their own good works don't ever see their need to be washed by Jesus Christ. Uh, notice here what it says in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and, uh, and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Earlier in this message, I talked about the Pharisees being vaccinated by self-deception. Notice here what John says. If we say, if we claim that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. There's the vaccination. It'll prevent you from getting the real thing, the real righteousness that comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, how do we get the real thing? How do we get out of self-deception? Notice it's his word. It's the word. The word of God is the what breaks us out of our vaccinated status, out of our self-deception. But dear ones, if you and I will remain self-deceived, thinking that we don't need an atonement, we don't need an imputed righteousness, we have plenty of our own, whether it's through atheism, good works, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, through any false religion, all of it's under the title of deceiving ourselves. If we think that we can be justified by any work, we stand self-deceived and we won't ever find the only remedy, which is in Christ Jesus. And so I don't want to leave you today before you go out the door with the remedy to the problem of sin. Notice here in Romans 3, 23 through 25, we both have the problem and the remedy. Notice Romans 3.23 begins saying, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's stop there for a moment. Notice it's universal. It's not some have sinned, it's all have sinned. The only person who never sinned was Jesus of Nazareth, the unique Son of God. Truly God, truly man. And that's why he had to become a man, so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could, so that he could be the second Adam. 
The first Adam brought us sin and death. Jesus brings us righteousness and life. That's the point. So yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single human being has rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. Notice here the good news, though. Here's the remedy. It begins in verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace. Stop there. Notice it's not human works. It's not our scruples. It's not our religion. It's grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Dear ones, notice here, when we look at the remedy, it's propitiation. And again, I'll, I'll define that term in a moment. That's the idea of atonement in his blood, and it's through faith. Let's start with in his blood. In his blood has to do with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's symbolic of that. I hear sometimes, in fact, we'll even sing it, and I know most of us know what that means. There's power in the blood. But I want you to realize the Bible isn't claiming a metaphysical, magical property to the blood. What it's claiming is the significance of Jesus' once and for all death, once and for all Jesus the just on behalf of us the unjust. It's his death as a substitute which pays our debt. Notice that's not given to every person. So Jesus dies, therefore everyone's saved. No, it's only access through faith. It's only those who trust and see the need for the remedy. But notice here, what are they receiving through faith, through Christ's finished work? They're receiving propitiation. That's the very same term, hilsterion, that the tax collector used in Luke 18 when he said, be propitious to me, the sinner. Now, propitiation is a very loaded term. Let me explain where it comes from. The term hilsterion literally has to do with the mercy seat that was on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. So I want you to go back in your mind, if you will. Many of you have probably read this to Leviticus 16. Remember in Leviticus 16, you have the Day of Atonement. And this is the one day of the year in the Jewish calendar in which the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice on behalf of all of Israel. Now remember, you had, if you think about the temple of the Jews, there was a wider sanctuary, then there was the holy place, and then there was the Holy of Holies. And the only person that went into the Holy of Holies was the high priest on this one day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on that day, what God commanded the high priest to do is he was to take two goats. And these two goats are highly symbolic of what the atoning, the atoning work that Christ does for us. So let's understand the two goats. The first goat, the high priest was to slay. But before he did so, he would place his hands on the goat and he would confess the sins of Israel so that the goat would vicariously carry the sins of the people. And then this goat called the scapegoat would be led out outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And the imagery was that the sins of the people would vicariously be removed by the goat. That aspect of atonement is called expiation. It is man-centered. It has to do with the removal of our sins, just as David had foretold in Psalm 103 when he says, as far away as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. That's the scapegoat. 
The other aspect of atonement is related to the other goat. The other goat, the high priest would bring into the Holy of Holies, again, only on that one day, and only after making atonement for himself. But what he would do is he would slay the goat, and he would take the blood of it, and he would pour it on the hysterion in Greek, the propitiation seat, the mercy seat, which was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. The very Ark of the Covenant in which God for a time in his Shekinah glory, his dwelling presence, dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And to remember, in the Ark of the Covenant, you also had the original Ten Commandments that God had given Moses on Sinai. And so I think part of the imagery that all of the Israelites and even us today, we're, we're to see is that as God resided with his people, in a sense, he looks down at his broken wall in the Ark of the Covenant, and his anger, his anger is kindled as his people rebel against him. But when he sees the blood of the animal shed and poured on the hysterion, the propitiation seat, his anger would be appeased because there was payment made. Now, let's put our theological caps on for just a moment. Because in Hebrews 10, 4, it says the blood of bulls and goats could never provide atonement. And so realize that the blood of this goat never really ultimately appeased the wrath of God, but it foreshadowed the coming work of Jesus of Nazareth. This idea of propitiation is essential because it's not just about a removal of sin. That's true. That's expiation. But it's about God's anger being appeased because payment was made in full. And the only way that you can have payment made in full so that you don't accrue God's wrath forever is through the payment of Jesus. His shed blood was viewed as payment in full by God the Father. And so do you see then how absurd it is to be a Pharisee and be vaccinated from getting the real thing? If you rely upon the blood of a bull, a goat, any other religion, your good works, anything else other than faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, you are a vaccinated Pharisee and you're on the way to hell. Jesus Christ alone gives propitiation and expiation, the removal of your sin and the appeasement of God's wrath. And if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. You stand condemned before God. That is the heir of the Pharisee. Brothers and sisters, let it be true of us today that we stand by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, revealed by the Scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone, and that we don't stand as the Pharisee, self-deceived by being vaccinated with our own good works. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that through faith alone and Christ alone we can have atonement. We do pray, Lord, that there may be some that may hear this and know that truth be told, they've been vaccinated all their life from getting the real thing, the real righteousness that comes from Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in the weeks and months and even years ahead that we have providentially, that you would give us boldness and opportunity to pro proclaim this gospel to those around us so that our coworkers, our friends, family, loved ones, that they may hear the good news of salvation through faith alone and Christ alone. We pray, Lord, that you regenerate hearts before us. 
I also pray, Heavenly Father, that as we go out the door, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, that you'd enable us to be those who honor your name. We pray this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.